Welcome to Connected Tech Season 2, Episode 4. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Daryl. And we've got a whole lot of fun for you today. Um, yes, indeed. We haven't eaten lunch. It's lunchtime, yep. It's way past lunchtime. Way past lunchtime. So we're thinking peanut butter and jelly? Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut, peanut butter, butter jelly, jelly time. time. Where peanut you but- at? Where, where you, you at? at? Peanut butter jelly in a baseball bat? Wow, that's that's a long. That's that was a, a fail. A meme that was a, a long, fail, long time ago. The only time you actually sang with me, you never usually sing with me. And my voice is not up to par today either, so you're very lucky. But you know, I did a little reading on llamas recently. One of the characteristics of a llama uh-huh. is that they communicate with humming. Hmm. And people ask us why the llama. So what sound does a llama make? Llama llama ding dong. That wasn't humming. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Um. <laughs> okay, so you're the llama whisperer. I'm the llama whisperer. Okay. We are llama whisperers, and we have for our, our lunchtime um, occasion here. We I brought the peanut butter today. You brought the peanut butter. And it, notice notice what kind of peanut butter it is, Daryl. Oh yes, Jif. It's Jif because uh, it's always. It's always. Always Jif. It's never Gif. It's always Jif. Yeah, uh, Jake Miller. A little gift for you. Just <laughs> for you. All right. So what are, what are we doing? Our, our episode's all about coding. Coding, computational thinking. A little hot topic. Yes. Around the education mm-hmm. world. So um, I don't really understand why we have bread, peanut butter, and jelly here, and how it connects to coding. But I feel like you're gonna tell me. Yes. Maybe why. So what we're going to do? Okay. You are the robot. Okay. And I'm gonna input some code. And then you're going to output that code. Okay. The code, um, we're going to try to create a peanut butter jelly sandwich, but you got to follow exactly what I tell you. I never follow exactly what you tell me. Well, this the time you have The rules are to, reversed. You are a robot. I programmed you to follow my instructions, exactly what I say. As long as it doesn't involve you putting a chip into me, we're good. Tortilla chip? Like a Dorito chip? Yeah, like a Dorito chip. Okay, you like Doritos? Okay. All right, so when I snap my fingers, you're going to transform into a robot. Robots do not blink. (laughs) But I can't flutter my eyelashes. (laughs) Oh, okay, good. That's good. That's a good, that's a great impression of a robot. Okay, so I'm going to give you some, I'm going to input some code. I blinked. (laughs) Robots don't have any emotions either. Get it out of your system, robot. I'm clearly the wrong person for this get, job. Get it, get it out of your system. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I'm ready. I'm going to snap. Ready? Okay. Robot Elizabeth. All right, Robot Elizabeth, we're going to create a peanut butter jelly sandwich. The first thing I'd like for you to do is to open the bag, the bread bag. Open the bread bag. Oh, oh, God, no. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, very good, very good. Place your hands back on your lap, robot. Okay, robot. Dang. We're going to have stale bread now. <laughs> Stop laughing. Okay, grab two slices of bread, robot. Two. Can you count? One, two. Okay, okay, okay. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Now, now I want you to, to grab with your other hand the Jif peanut butter. Okay, very good, very good. Okay, open... The Jif peanut butter. Oh. Uh, okay. Put the bread down on the plate. On the plate. Put the bread on the plate. Okay. Open. Stop laughing. Open the Jif peanut butter. Open. Like twist the cap. Twist the cap, robot. There you go. Look at lefty, lefty, Lucy, righty, tighty. You got lefty, Lucy. Perfect. Okay. Place the lid down. Place the lid on the table. There you go. Okay. Now I want you to grab that one slice of bread. With your right hand. Oh no no no! Sorry. <laughs> this is not. This is hard. Place the peanut butter down, robot. Okay. Gra- okay. Listen carefully. Okay. With your left hand, grab the knife carefully. Don't cut yourself. There you go. All right. Now using the knife, <laughs> grab some peanut butter. I'm right-handed. Oh, with your, okay. You're okay. ambidextrous, robot. Oh, okay, let's see. Yeah, get some peanut butter. There you go. Okay, now, place the peanut butter on the slice of bread. Very good. Okay, spread it. Spread it more. Spread it. Yeah. 
Get it all in. There you go. You want to make sure even distribution of peanut butter on the bread. Okay. You're not you're not allergic to peanuts, are you? No way. I okay. love. Am I supposed to talk? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Stop. All right. Now you're gonna put the knife down. Very good. Look, where are your manners? Where are your manners? Put the put the knife on the plate. Okay. Now grab the grab the jelly with your left hand. Grab the jelly. Okay. Now open the jar. Oh, pl no. Oh, pl place the place the bread on the plate. Open the jar quickly. Our viewers are getting bored now. Okay. <laughs> grab the knife. Actually, put the knife down. Hmm. Using your hands, robot. <laughs> okay, no, grab the knife. Grab the knife. Grab the knife. Grab the knife. Okay. Are you okay? Are, are you okay with this? Like using the same knife. I'm, as long as you you're okay this? with that, you probably jelly. <laughs> I don't know. Some people may not. Okay, I feel like I'm okay with it. peanut butter is pretty safe, but I, I don't feel like, I feel like some people would get a new knife, but I don't have one. Okay, good. Place, please, the, please. Pl place the knife. There you go. Place the knife in the jelly, in the jam. All right. Get a good... There you go. Place the jelly on top of the... You know what? It's going to fall. Let's see. Let's go. Uh, let's get the other side. Put the jelly on the other slice of bread. There you go. Yeah, well, you, you got to... Okay, gosh, this is harder than I thought. Uh... Uh, your left hand. Put the put the jar down. Put the jar down. Your left hand. Yeah. Put this on the table. Now, with your with your left hand, grab the other slice of bread. Now, spread that jelly on the bread with with the knife, not your hands. There you go. All righty. Not bad. Come on. Even distribution. There you go. Now don't don't puncture the bread. Okay. Now, put the knife back on the plate, robot. All right. Place the bread on top of the other slice of bread. <gasps> oh, snap. Okay. All righty. Okay. It worked. Now enjoy. <laughs> enjoy. Enjoy your sandwich. Is that hot Sure. Hey, you get the same product, right? You get to eat it. It's the same <laughs> thing. It tastes the same no matter what. Right? Okay. We okay. did gotta, okay I, with that. You're still a robot. We did okay with that. I gotta snap my finger back. Oh, snap. Boom, boom. Now you're back to it. I feel like I'm in an episode of uh, Bewitched or I Dream a Genie, which is... Bewitched. I dream a genie. Oh, I dream a genie. <laughs> I was like, what is a Jew a genie? <laughs> a Jew a genie. <laughs> what is that? I've never heard what of is, that. What is, uh, what was that thing I said earlier about that? What's that? Spoil your, I said spoil the, spoil the kids. And oh, I, 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 I heard uh, it's, uh, have you stirred the gravy? <laughs> are you ready to stir the, the gravy? I said, I said, are you ready to spoil the baby? And you thought I said... Are you, Are ready, you ready to stir, to stir the, the gravy? gravy? Which is perfect. Perfect for Thanksgiving. For Thanksgiving. Okay, now, it is lunchtime, so. Okay, yeah, I'm, t I'm totally going to eat this sandwich. But what I kind of got out of this activity, even though that peanut butter jelly sandwich just looks pretty, pretty bad, was that this is all about process and procedure. When I was an English teacher in the classroom, we taught procedural texts, and students had to write procedural essays. And um, it was Sorry. about step by step and being able to follow those steps to create a product or, yes. or some type of, oh, you're really going to eat it, huh? I'm hungry. Yeah. Oh, you're sick, aren't you? <laughs> I'm not sick. So our guest today is a coding guru. He's actually written a book called Codebreaker, and he actually has another one that's coming out. I think it's out right now, available on Amazon. He's going to tell us about that in our interview with him coming up next right after this commercial break. Stay tuned. You make a good peanut butter jelly sandwich, robot. You can find all things related to the Connect Ed Tech podcast by visiting our website, flippinggoodtech.com. And while you're there, make sure to click on all the tabs for a closer look at who we are and why we're passionate about everything we do. And most importantly, be sure to follow us at Flippin' Good Tech on all social media platforms and subscribe to our YouTube channel for quick access to all the latest podcast episodes, Connect Ed Tech promos, and Flipped in 5 Tech tips. We're back with season two, episode four of Connect Ed Tech Podcast, and we have a very special guest with us today, all the way from Canada. It's uh, the code breaker himself, Brian Aspinall. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing very well. How you doing? All the way from Canada. You make it sound so small. <laughs> <laughs> all the way from Canada's far from us. And it's huge. <laughs> it's huge. It's a huge place. What part of Canada are you in? I live in southern Ontario, uh, as far south in mainland Canada as you can be. And I always love to trick my Canadian and my American friends and colleagues by saying I live 45 minutes south of Detroit in mainland Canada, 
think about it, figure it out. Where the heck am I? Where's, where's Waldo? Where's Brian? <laughs> Surrounded by the Great Lakes. Uh, living on, actually, that's Lake Erie right there. If you can see across the lake, you can see Cleveland, Ohio. That's awesome. It's a little misty over the lake. Yeah, so it's, it's only plus two here today in uh, Celsius. What? Plus two. Okay, it's kind of right. We, we're Fahrenheit over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're that... about 38 degrees Fahrenheit right now. I was going to guess 34, so. <laughs> yeah. By the yeah. way, I see, I see you now. I just had to swipe. So, hey, you guys look great. Hey. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Where are you? So do you. What are you in? We're in Texas. We're about 20 miles east of Houston, and yeah. we are in a our local public library in their oh, team media center. They let us use it once a month for our podcast. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. Community outreach. It totally is, because this podcast for us is a passion project. We do it on yeah. our own time. So uh, we needed a public place to do it, and the library has been super welcoming to us once a month. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Good for that. Free studio Free space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, why don't you um, go ahead and get started by telling us a little bit about who you are. We know the topic today is going to be on coding, and you are sort of an expert in that, as we, we have learned in our research on you and following you on Twitter. So just tell us who you are and a little bit about your background in education. Absolutely. Yeah, my name is Brian Aspinall. Uh, I'm a former elementary school teacher. I taught grade 7-8 for what we call grade 7-8. You call 7th grade, 8th grade for about 13 years. Um, but my undergrad is in computer science, and we always teach to our strengths. And so coding computer science has always been a passion of mine. Um, but we, we up here where I'm from don't have a coding and a computer science curriculum in elementary school. So I always tell people that I teach my Ontario curriculum using code. I don't, I mean, I teach coding, but I like to say I teach math, I teach language, and I teach science uh, using code. A couple years ago, I went back to grad school and they never let me leave. So I gave up my elementary school classroom and now I teach at the faculty of ed. So I, I teach teachers these days how to integrate coding and computational thinking into their classrooms. That's amazing. So um, we know that you've written a couple of books. I've seen your TED talk and you also have a blog. You have a huge following. on. I have a shameless plug because we just uh, two of my books published yesterday and Think Like a Coder is a primary read aloud. It's sitting at number one bestseller today in the programming category on Amazon Canada. That's amazing. And it's called what again? It's called Think Like a Coder. Follow a girl and her dog as they navigate their world in one day, moment of time in one day, and they explore computational thinking as it relates to their everyday life as a young five, six, seven, eight-year-old student. Okay, that's awesome. I'm gonna set this question up and Daryl may have a follow-up question, but you mentioned computational thinking. One of the things that I noticed in your book throughout the entire book, you reference coding, you mentioned computer science, you mentioned computational thinking. And we've heard all of those terms um, in education ourselves, but sometimes we're confused a little bit about if those things are synonyms, do they mean the same thing, or are they different? And if they're different, how are they connected? Computer science at week slash what we informally call hour of code. It's actually computer science education week, uh, the week of December the 9th. So it's on the horizon, it's only two weeks away. So I would love to address that question. Um, computational thinking is, in my opinion, it's a mindset where you understand how machines work and as a result, you either use them to your advantage, you tweak them to your advantage, you program to your advantage. But the idea is it's very parallel to the design thinking process. So the idea of number one, solving problems, number two, planning a solution to the problem, and number three, writing code to then go about automating the solutions to the problem. So coding is a piece of the computational thinking umbrella, which is a much bigger uh, spectrum, if you will. Now, coding and computer science have also become synonymous, and that's a terrible misconception because there's a huge part of computer science that involves physical computing and hardware and networking. So yes, coding is a part of computer science, but they're not, they're not the maker movement, the maker space, the STEM, the STEAM terms would probably be more sim synonymous with computer science than anything else. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, these terms to me, I'm an English 
major. I taught English for 11 years and I, I also work in training teachers now in a professional development, digital learning capacity. And Daryl's a media specialist. He has a science background. But to just the average teacher, saying some of these terms is scary to them, even just saying the word coding. So when we talk about curriculum integration with coding, oh my gosh, you mean I have to teach my kids to code? That means I need to learn how to code. So how can we make uh, educators comfortable with that? It doesn't matter whether it's coding, whether it's drama, whether it's cooking. It's a question of pedagogy and teachers just need to be comfortable letting go. Uh, every kid in my school knows something I don't. And when I embrace that, innovation happens. When I, when I let the kids teach me, I mean, I've been a professional coder for 20 plus years and I still learn from my students every single day. Um, so the idea of integrating coding into the classroom, it's like anything else that's new. It's, it's let's just try and let's just learn together. Let's be co-learners, let's remove the hierarchies, let's sit down. I think a part of the problem, I don't know if problem is the correct word, but math is so intimidating. Uh, if you're not a math educator, we always say, I'm not a math person, you know, I, I was never any good at math, all those misconceptions about uh, the way people learn. We plunk coding and computer science into that same space and it becomes an extra layer of intimidation. I mean, I, I, I gotta get this math thing wrapped around in my head first and then I have to do coding with my kids. I think our jobs as educators is to know our curriculum incredibly well so that we can recognize those innovative moments and those teachable moments when they actually happen. It's not, I don't think we all need to be professional coders. I think we need to know our media curriculum. We need to know our English curriculum really, really well, and then find those entry points or let the kids find those entry points with what they're passionate about, whether it's coding or, or whether it's robotics or whether it's drama. Uh, all right, so now we've read your book and we saw a lot of practical examples of how to incorporate um, programming or coding or computational thinking in the classroom. And you mentioned Scratch and all the, and these different programs. Um, how do you get a teacher, though, who doesn't, who has no knowledge in coding or block coding, et cetera, to, to just open up and give students the opportunity to explore these tools if they don't have enough time in the curriculum to teach the content and then teach them how to use the tools. So how, how do you embed that, you know, and at the same time be able to cover your content? I think that the more technology I integrate, I think the more I use tools like Scratch uh, and like Minecraft, the more time I have. I find my planning times are back. I find I'm not standing at a photocopier. I find the playground of Scratch, the sandbox of Scratch is so naturally scaffolded and differentiated. I don't need to do any preliminary work to meet the needs of all the kids in my class because it happens so naturally. So when I tell people coding, uh, how do I get started with coding? It's, it's, it's just about mindset. It's not, it's not, I don't have time to do coding, it's a new thing. No, it's why don't we look at, at doing math this way? It's not coding. It's let's look at doing math in a block-based coding environment. Scratch is a wonderful tool to teach geometry just by simply playing in that space. So I often tell teachers, you know, I, I recognize the comfort piece. You know your curriculum really, really, really well. And then maybe start on a Friday afternoon, book out the computer lab if you've got one or a Chromebook cart. Grab a couple of tutorials, grab a couple of my examples or my tutorial videos, let the kids just work at their own pace because you're going to find right away, not only is the engagement there, I've done 90 minute workshops with grade two students who are still engaged after 90 minutes. You can't keep the attention of that age, of any age, for 90 minutes. Um, so the rest, right. it, it all will fluidly fall into place as long as the pedagogy is there. And when I say, maybe you call it pedagogy, the idea of letting go and letting go doesn't mean chaos letting go doesn't mean we're throwing desks and it's a crazy party in my room it means i'm providing meaningful learning spaces and opportunities for kids to explore be creative be curious take risks learn from failure and also learn from the environment the biggest piece about tools like scratch tools like minecraft is the immediate feedback from the system it goes back to time the more I have my kids programming in a Scratch environment, the more feedback the Scratch environment provides them, the more time I have to consolidate with other learners that might be missing the math concepts. Really, really good. I, I caught a couple of things there I wanted to kind of follow up with. 
Uh, one thing you talked about, integrating technology. The other thing you mentioned sounded a lot like a blended learning environment, which has a blend of tech and non-tech involved with it. But what you were saying kind of reminded me of a quote that I read in your book, Codebreaker, when you said, the more I think about changing my classroom practice, the less I think about technology. So when we think about coding and all that, obviously technology is the first thing that comes to our mind and surely the teachers in the classroom, but I loved your explanation of that quote. So if you remember what you said in the book, or you could you know, kind of elaborate on what your thinking is, the less you think about technology, uh, what does that mean? It means that in the last 20 years, uh, in the last 20 or so years, education has seen one of the biggest disruptions, if ever, if you will, because of access of information. So as a result, for thousands of years, and I'm going to get some pushback on saying this, I know I am, I always do. For thousands of years, we focused on content knowledge. I'm not saying we weren't focusing on thinking skills, but I am suggesting that when I went to school, what was evaluated was my ability to retain and regurgitate information and maybe apply it. Maybe. That's what I remember from my childhood experience. So I think now today, access of information uh, in the internet age, the social media age, the space in which we live today has shifted absolutely everything. So the idea of changing your classroom, whether you want to integrate coding whether you want to try a flipped classroom, whether you want to go paperless, whatever your goals are in your classroom, it all comes back to the mindset and the pedagogy piece. I need to not have kids in my class sitting in quiet rows, all doing the same 30 questions on a worksheet, particularly because as a former phys ed teacher, I never marked the kids in my class based on how many foul shots they could make out of 10 because every kid would fail. So why am I doing that in my math class by providing them all the same 10 questions? So the more I think about education in the 21st century, clearly technology is going to be a component of it, but I'm just, I'm, I think I'm just done with this narrative of technology, technology, technology. Sure, the technology of the 20th century was the 2B pencil or using a pen in our classrooms. We didn't spend 40 minutes a week playing with pencils and calling us progressive educators in the 20th century. So fast forward to today, I don't see technology as an event. And I think as long as it's an event and not embedded in practice, it's not going to be utilized to its truest potential. But that all comes back to the idea, two things, the definition of compliance and the definition of failure. What does it mean to fail in your school? Because when I was a kid, failure meant I got four out of 10 on a math quiz. Right. But today in my classroom, failure means crap that didn't work i have to go change a variable pun intended and try something again so the more i think about this this narrative of education reform the less it is about the device it's about mindset and it's about having good pedagogy about the way people teach and learn today's kids are different this is the the most drastically different generation humans have ever seen kids today because you're talking about the, the growth mindset and the ability to fail forward. And I think, because I'm, I'm not very, very good with programming. I, I do it. I have a UL computer science club that I sponsor, but the kids do it all themselves and they know a, a lot about it. And what I notice is when these kids are creating their codes or the program, a lot of the times the program doesn't work. It fails. So what do they do is they go back and they, they fix it up and they retry it again. So, Programming and coding inherently has that growth mindset applied to it. Um, saying that, how could a teacher, if a teacher has never used coding before, never seen it before, let's just say in an elementary school, what would be the best way for them to incorporate coding to promote growth, growth, the growth um, mindset in their classroom? What's like one simple thing that they can do? without any knowledge of coding, how to promote that mindset in their classroom? One simple thing they, they can do to promote that mindset, model it. I think, I, I remember when lessons of mine didn't work, and I remember being uncomfortable with vulnerability, having a class mm -hmm. of 25, 13-year-olds staring at me. They know my lesson is tanked. I'm not willing to admit that. They're all off task. I think now those are, those are tremendously missed opportunities. Just the idea of just modeling what that means. Talking about things like 
like WD-40. Where did the name come from? Well, it was the 40th formula that finally worked. They failed 39 times trying to make a lubricant. Or Angry Birds, that was Rovio's 52nd. They spent six years building apps before one finally hit. So again, to me, it comes back to the narrative of what does it mean to fail? How do you define failure in your classroom? And how do you define failure in your school? And once you've reevaluated that part of it, I think then you're ready to integrate these new concepts, whether it's coding, whether it's Minecraft, whether it's makey makey, like whatever the new thing might be, because coding is super hot now, but it won't be in five to 10 years. I mean, software is going to write software. It's part of the process. There'll be something else and we have to be ready for the else. But I think the other piece too, we, we're so fearful as a society that I, I get invited to consulting at schools and, and I'll walk into a school and, and on the first thing I'll see on the wall is the, the off and away poster, the X through the cell phone. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm talking about when I say mindset. You're not ready to integrate coding if you're, if you're off and away because your definition of compliance is much different than mine. I think compliance means engagement, but in those buildings, compliance means I'm a rule follower and my phone's mm -hmm. in my pocket. Ah, oh, man, you're, you're just hitting the nail on the head right there. <laughs> we, and that's the same mindset that we have here and we're trying to promote. And it's interesting, like hearing it from, because we've talked to other ed tech gurus out there and they don't specialize in coding, but they have that same mindset. How do we promote our students to, to fail forward? And you no, know, well, it's, it's I always use Fizad as the example because the, the biggest, uh, I don't think pushback is the right word. A, a lot of the biggest pieces I often get is how do we do coding in the, uh, in the uh, specialized content areas? How does the history teacher do it? How does the art teacher do it? How does the phys ed teacher do it? And I taught Rotary Phys Ed for almost 15 years and I was doing it. I was doing it in my class. There's no reason why students can't be sprinting back and forth in a gym and touching tinfoil that's connected to Makey Makey and Scratch is creating mm -hmm. a logbook, a health goal logbook, you know, for mm -hmm. them. But again, what's the philosophy of Phys Ed? You learn from the environment, trial and error, feedback, failure, all of those pieces. It's the same in a traditional science classroom. It's the same in a traditional arts classroom. Drama teachers have been using this mindset since the beginning of school. We just, can you, can you just, repeat those four things that you kind of cut off? The four yeah. things? Okay. What, what was the first one? Just connecting. <laughs> <laughs> you were listing some stuff up, but then you kind of cut off. I want to make sure our viewers hear that. Uh, connecting, you said, I, that's what I heard the first thing you said. <laughs> connecting? That's what we're here. So that's what we're, we're all about connecting. <laughs> you're listing off things. You're connecting phys ed to, to coding. Oh, 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 oh. The, I was connecting phys ed to coding in the sense that when you learn to serve a volleyball, there are a series of variables. Your, your alignment of your feet, where you hold the ball, how you, your form, all of those pieces are variables. And I use the word variable intentionally because it's, it's a computer science word, but it's also an algebra term, right? or science and variable. So we learn from the environment. We learn from the immediate feedback. If I'm gonna learn how to make a layup, I'm going to shoot the ball at the square on the backboard. That's why it's there. And I'm gonna keep trying and trying and trying and trying until I get it. That's the coding space. That's the maker space. That's, uh, that's to me, 21st century education. Whether it's coding, whether it's it could be anything. I will, let's not even use the word coding. It's the idea of learning from failure, trying new things. Because in a world that changes overnight, the only strategy Garrett fail is not trying something new. The rate of change, like right now in this moment, is the slowest it will ever be forever. And that, that quote holds true five minutes from now, five days from now, five months from now. I'm going to say it again right now. The rate of change right now is slower, the slowest it will ever be, and faster than it was when I said it 30 <laughs> seconds. And by the end of next year, it's projected 50 billion devices connected to the internet. 8 billion people on the planet, so everybody's going to have five devices to them connected to the internet. We're in the Internet of Things era, and I think that's going to be probably the second biggest disruption we've seen in education. The first one being the internet and social media. This one's going to be everything kids interact with, my wallet, my keys, 
everything becomes a data point because Amazon wants to know our behavior. Companies like Amazon are going to market what we do, so they're going to track everything that we do, and everybody is going to be data mined. That's the world in which we live. And that stems, pun intended, back to the mindset of fear. That's a scary thing. We have often away posters in schools, but by the end of next year, we're gonna have 50 billion devices connected to the internet. I currently have an app on my phone that, that tells me every time the door opens on my rental property. So I know when guests check out, we have a place on Airbnb. That's the world in which I live today. So um, you talked about the fear component again, and you talked about Amazon and all the, the data mining and things that's going on and how it's just going to increase over the years. And again, the fear factor comes into play, especially with people, um, you know, our generation and older. So I think the idea of privacy and safety with students when they're interacting with things that are online or connected to the internet, the internet of things connected to everything. Um, can you give some practical tips for educators out there to kind of help them not want to put that big red X on the cell phone image to say, okay, okay, let's go ahead and not do that, but what can we do to ensure some other uh, safety and some parameters for our students? Pick, okay, so let's, let's pick uh, a traditional school. And by traditional, I don't mean like archaic. I'm not using the word in that context. I'm using the school down the road right here. Let's say there's 10 teachers at that school right now. How many of them do you think have a blog? How many of them? But my point is, we need to be transparent. Like, we as educators, we have to be out there. It, you can Google me till I'm blue in the face. I have no secrets. My personal life and my professional life are the same because I believe in the transparency of it. So, to prepare kids for this new world, Internet of Things, we have to live in it. We can't say, oh, I'm the older generation, so I'm not going to be on Facebook. Like, it's not Facebook. You don't have to go and join Snapchat. But my point is, how many of, of, of the educators in your circles are living in that, that transparent space where we're sharing our own successes and our own right. failures? Right. Not many. I'm talking to you because you live in that space, but how many people how many of your listeners don't or are apprehensive to get in that space? It's all mindset again and fear and coding, whatever. It's all the same. I mean, that's interesting. Like, because we're in the, we're in the space and we try to keep up with everything. And I guess we're so into it, like deep into it. Like we think, Oh, this is natural. I feel like most people are doing what we're doing, but then, but I've seen like lately, especially like on Twitter, more and more teachers are going onto Twitter, sharing their success stories, following people, um, tweeting good things on, you know, on through Twitter. I think I'm changing the question of a subject now, but what I've noticed now on Twitter is nope. the same stuff that people post the same things like, Oh, and it, it gets to the point where I have to filter through all these tweets. It's like, Oh, what's the best thing that I'm going to get from, from, from I'm going back to like curating, curating the content on Twitter. Uh, what's, what's, you know, the best thing to follow out there? What's the best thing to show? What should I showcase? You had to mention like, you know, more, more people need to be out there showing, they know what they what they're doing but for me in the back end it's okay so how can we now tweet stuff out there that's relevant to what people should hear a message that i want to share rather than just tweet just for the sake of tweeting social media following is the currency of the 21st century those are the influencers it's not i mean celebrities yeah but the influencers in any industry are those that's the currency and whether, you, whether we like it or not, it's, it's here to stay. And, and I, I recognize what you're saying. Twitter has become a very noisy space and it's hard to filter and it's hard to, you know, use TweetDeck to create your own columns and lists. But <laughs> yeah. what, what, what about 80% what about of the educators out there that aren't still on Twitter? I've been on Twitter 10 years. There are educators out there that have still been teaching 10, 15, 20 years and not been on. And I'm not suggesting Twitter makes you a good teacher. It's the connection piece. Right. Two of, the, two of the biggest companies in the world don't sell their own product or service. Airbnb and Uber have harnessed the power of activity and relationships to have people monetize themselves in mm -hmm. turn, making two very, very profitable companies. 
Hmm. And I think that future industry is going to go more and more and more freelance. Our kids today aren't going to work nine to five jobs. They need to find what they're good at and they need to figure out how to market and brand themselves. That's the world in which we live, I think. And that we're in a bit of a rabbit hole, but that goes to the digital citizenship piece and the transparency piece about living, living and learning out loud. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think that a lot of times as educators, we like to talk in theory. Um, everything's so theoretical. Okay, okay, this is, this is what the real world will look like, but then we don't, we're scared or we don't know how to go about giving students authentic opportunities to actually practice some of those real world applications. And I feel like what you're telling us is that coding is a perfect way to give students some experience with with doing some real world type type things. I mean, in reality, they have a real world. You know, everybody has a real world. It's the world they're in right now. So um, I love that you said that. Now, to kind of extend that, what what types of jobs are out there besides computer science related jobs that do require computational thinking or coding that, you, that you've heard about or seen that our students could go into without even having a computer science degree or anything like that? Well, all of them. If you're, I think if you're going to study computer science and pursue that industry and be a professional computer science person, that's fantastic. But I also think like reading and writing, coding is a skill that every industry, every job is going to need. I want to see a world where every teacher has to take a course on HTML because it should be a requirement for them to have a class website to communicate with parents. Because the more, again, the more transparent we are, the more redundant report cards become. There's no reason for a report card in this day and age. These are archaic things that have to change. So any job moving forward should and will include any facet of coding and computer science. Everything will. My smoke alarm has code in it. I need to know how that works. It's go back to when we were learning how to drive. My, my parents taught me how to change the oil and put air in the tire. And so kids need to know how these machines work. And, and there's going to be coding in just about everything we do for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I know there are high schools right now who make coding a required class. Uh, not a lot, but I know a few high schools do that. But it we, can get, go ahead. In, in, Canada, it's a requirement in the province of British Columbia now in grade six and up. In six and up? And Yeah, and Nova Scotia is following. We don't have anything formal in Ontario, but we have supplementary resources to support uh, teaching math with code. I got to be careful with my terminology. Not teaching coding, teaching math with math code. code. Math is what I assess and evaluate, not coding. So they're embedding it. Um... In their, in their content rather which, than I know which I love because again the more it's seen the thing about coding right now is that these are two these are a bit a few pet peeves of mine number one <laughs> coding is not a club we don't have math clubs at lunchtime number two the, the more we see these things as events the more they get treated as reward systems. Certain kids get to go and hang out in the makerspace. Like mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not what it's about, but that's what's happening. That's what I see in my travels that I've visited. I, I like how in your book, you also talk about coding as a language and we hear that the language of code. And I told you earlier that I'm in, I have an English background. So writing and reading is a huge part of what I do and how I communicate. So. When I think of coding and I think of language, I think of, um, I know a little bit about conversational language where I can actually communicate just enough to get by. And then there's the other stuff where I can be more fluent in that language so that I can converse about anything. I can apply it to any new situation. So with that said, do you think that it's important for everyone to know how to be fluent in this language of code? Or do you think it's okay that we're conversational in some aspects and then some people are just going to naturally become more fluent? Code. That, that's where it gets a little bit gray to people. I hear people say code is a language. No, code is a, an umbrella that consists of plenty of languages. But the difference between studying English and studying JavaScript is JavaScript is universal. JavaScript here and JavaScript in Japan are the same JavaScript. And so there's there's a, a, a bonding, a, a bridging of equity across the globe 
when you look at it through that language lens, just like you said, I absolutely love thinking about it like that. And then that reminds me of like tools like Scratch are so successful because it's a block environment and we don't have to worry about kids writing mm -hmm. syntax. Right. Um, if I had eighth grade students doing a Python project and a kid lost a semicolon, well, we're going to lose sight of the task trying to debug that problem. And the task is math. It's not writing Python. So that's why the block-based environment or how you described it as mm -hmm. the, the conversational conversational language, that is one that I think is entirely beautiful because you link things together to form scripts to show your what you're passionate about, what you're, uh, whatever you want to make in, in, in that Scratch program. Yeah, the way you describe the computational thinking and coding, I, I feel like teachers now, they, they do that, but they don't realize they're, they're doing it. So I like, would agree 100%. They just have to be the, once they have the realization, oh, this is very similar to computational thinking. I'm actually doing it. Now let's just, you know, bring it out more, point it out in class, the relevancy, and then more and more people. Uh, I, just, I just figured it out. I figured you, it <laughs> You got it. Like, let's go uh, a traditional science structures project. You know, you give kids a pile of paper and you say, I need you to build a structure that supports 10 textbooks, right? We've all done that. We've all seen that kind of project mm -hmm. or, or the marshmallow toothpicks, build a structure, yada, yada, yada. Well, that is design thinking. That is computational thinking. The only piece that's missing is in computational thinking, we use computer code to assist in solving of that problem. So maybe I'm going to build a structure in Scratch or a couple different ones to simulate weather or tornadoes or earthquakes before I actually go out and do it with paper or, or toothpicks. Yeah, that, that was that was a really good clarification. That was a good question, Daryl. Um, or a good observation. It was a good observation. It wasn't even a question. Um, one of the things too in your book that you mentioned is the learning to code continuum. And you mentioned Scratch earlier and the block coding pieces. And I think the acronym you gave or the letters you gave were B-O-S-C. So we're talking about entry points, I guess, into to this coding language. Could you kind of break those four things down? So glad that you asked that. Um, this hasn't taken off. What I mean is I, I thought the world needs this continuum because we don't have a framework. Other than ISTE standards or Computer Science Teachers Association, it, it's so big and grow. Five years ago, there was one coding app in the app store. Now there's thousands. Right? The corporate world wants to get involved. So the continuum in my mind, because again, where do I start? Depends on a lot of factors. It depends on access to technology. It depends on the age of your kids. It depends on your ability. It depends on their, like there's a lot of variables. So I threw that together to act as a bit of a guide. Um, the hour of code when it first came out was amazing. After a few years, I hated it because it told people that if they went to a website for one hour and they did a bunch of tutorials where there was no critical thinking involved whatsoever, pretty much, and then they got to print a certificate, they were coding. Now, the Hour of Code, love those people to death. They all do great work and they've evolved their site to be more open-ended stuff. But back to that beginning, when I say uh, B-O-S-C, uh, the first one being bought, that's the space where teachers and kids can play on games and apps that teach the fundamentals of coding. Uh, the games, the apps, the tutorials are typically level-based, like Angry Birds. They just get more advanced as you proceed through. Um, but it's not a sandbox. It's We're going to show you how to move Minecraft Steve three squares down, one to the right. Now go do it. And then we do it and then we go to the next level and then it's five squares and then we do it and then we go to the next level and those are great great places but as i always say to people bot coding that's what i call the the bot space where you the robot tells you what to do you move the robot the robot tells you what to do you move the robot um those are wonderful entry points but the hour of code is not a destination that's not where that's not the print the certificate we're done that's the entry point that's where we start and unfortunately that's where that's the only step a lot of people get to so i like to say that bot coding space is the early hour of code type apps and games where it tells you what to do and then you go and do it and then you move into the open space uh coding and that's tools like tinker hopscotch the new hour of code stuff scratch uh, I call them now the sandbox spaces. You can do whatever you want, only limited by the parameters of the app, 
in that environment. So now you, you did the bot code stuff. So you learned about loops, you learned about conditional logic, you learned about variables. Now we're gonna take you out of the tutorial space. We're gonna plunk you in the open coding space and you're going to now demonstrate your understanding of uh, particle theory or the water cycle using block code. After that, you're going to have learners that obviously want to do more than what the block environment can allow for, which is where you then would incorporate your syntax. And the syntax stage, so B-O, bot, open, syntax, the syntax space would be, um, I, I typically would have students do what they've always done in the open space, but try it in a language like Python. And that's where we provide exposure to kids who might want to pursue it in high school, who are going to actually write syntax later on. Um, the last step there, I called C collaborative. I, I got a little heat for that one. It's collaborative the entire time. That was the pushback I got a lot on the book is implying that coding is only collaborative in that final space. No, it's collaborative the entire time. But what I mean in that final, 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 final space is when I'm solving problems using code, I know that somebody else has already written a module that I can make use right. of. That's the module I need to go find. It's no different than signing up for Pinterest using your Facebook account. You know, it says, oh, sign in with Google. Well, that's using an existing API that another service is providing. That's what I call the truly collaborative because it's across the globe. Again, I'm not suggesting the other three aren't collaborative within the parameter of your classroom or your learning space. But in this sense, uh, it's industry and it's, it's global. The collaboration piece is, is, is I'm going to find resources I need to help me solve the problem, authentic problems. Not, again, I'm not suggesting that we don't provide kids authentic problems in Scratch when they're learning to code, but I am saying like, okay, I need to create an app to track the mist coming off Lake Erie right here because the side of my house is growing mold, right? And I need to figure out, uh, there's gotta be a correlation to moisture in the air. I need to go figure out how I can write yeah. software to track that on my behalf. It's design thinking right there. Yeah. Computational design thinking. Yeah, Let's just draw, we just, those are just such trendy buzzwords. <laughs> they oh, are. Have you ever played buzzword Computational bingo? design thinking. Say it again. Have you ever played buzzword bingo? Every time I do a keynote, I say this. Go on Pinterest and look up buzzword bingo like 2018. You'll get an educational jargon bingo card that says, Sammer model and <laughs> I haven't heard Sammer in a while. I think you just gave us our an idea. idea for an intro. <laughs> <laughs> we do like a little intro before we interview the guests. And today's intro, which you have not seen, but you see evidence of here. Do you see the the GIF peanut butter? Because it's always GIF, not GIF. And then the jelly. You caught <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, I see it. Oh, it's blurry, but I see it. <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to be, well, in our intro, we use that to, uh, to demonstrate some um, non-computer programming. So um, You probably know what the... <laughs> make it a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah, but in the instructions, like load charting. Yeah. You're following a script. You're following a procedure. Right. Uh, we, and you being an English person, like I used to teach procedural writing. I had to. It was mandatory part of my curriculum. Like, so all of a sudden I stopped using the word procedure and I'm like, hey guys, today we're gonna write the algorithm for making a They're like, what? Right? what? It's so fancy. Okay, so uh, Brian, this has been so good for us and we have a couple of questions to kind of wrap it up. We're getting really close to the end of our time with you. Yep. And uh, one of the things I mentioned, uh, well, you mentioned a couple of times was the Hour of Code. It's coming up December the 9th through the 13th. Yeah. What plans? Say that again. Well, the hour of code is, but that's just a, an entry point. <laughs> uh -oh. Computer science. What was he going to say? Computer, computer science. science. That's right. Yes. Computer science, 9th to the 16th of December. Okay. So what um, do you have planned for that week? Something quick that you might share or that um, just anything that you might say to other people out there listening? The, the day hour of code week, computer science. And week starts uh, is the day I actually get home. I'm heading to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where we're doing five full school days, 60 minute, five times 60 minute workshops times five days at five schools is how I'm celebrating this year. I can't do the math. <laughs> yeah, that, that was way higher level math for me. So that's awesome. Yeah, for, for those, for other people that want to get started, 
and don't want to fuss about a Chromebook cart or don't want to fuss about, you know, you go get an iPad cart and 14 of them are dead and you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. I would go to csunplugged.org. There are hundreds of computer science lessons. The website's called Teach Computer Science Without a Computer. And some of my favorite lessons on there, you would appreciate this, I think, as an English major, are teaching code through fairy tales. Having students write the procedure just like building peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Having students write the procedure to move Peter Pan across grid paper or the carpet on the floor to save Tinkerbell from Big Bad Wolf. It's a script. <laughs> That is definitely right up my alley. So thank you for that suggestion. That's the one I'm going to check out first. So you're, you're like the expert. We've learned so much from you, from your books, from your TED Talks, um, from your blog, from following you on Twitter. Who do you get your information from? Who do you follow? I mean, what's, what's, who is your muse? Um, that's changed for me uh, quite a bit in the last little while. And uh, there, were, there are some people that I hold in really high regard in the computer science world. Uh, people I idolized growing up as a younger teacher, people I idolized when I got into education, um, but it's, that's changed for me. Uh, I follow as many teachers as I can back on Twitter because I think everybody has something to offer. Everybody in this space knows something that I don't. Um, so I, I follow a lot of blogs. I, I follow a lot of people closely on TweetDeck. I, I, nobody really in particular anymore. Uh, I try and stay away from the corporate spaces because while I believe with the research the Apples and the Microsofts of the world have, they're also selling product. And we have to be mindful of that. Um, so, it, you know, it, following people such as yourselves, podcasts, that's a new thing. Right for blogging is is dead. It's podcasting, and you know how many teachers. Anyway, we're we're going in circles. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. We're at the end of our time. We're going to continue to follow you, and um, if we lose you, just hang on. Don't don't hang up. But um, we want to just thank Brian Aspinall for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. And um, that's the end of our season two, episode four. Episode nine. Wow. Total episode Almost nine. Double digits. Yeah. So we will see you next time on the Flipping, Flipping Good, Good Side of Tech. Tech.